Welcome to Hospitality Meets with me, Phil Street, where each week we take a light-hearted look into the stories and individuals that make up the wonderful world of hospitality. Today's guest is Deborah Ward, Global Transitions Director at ISS Facility Services UK. Coming up on today's show... Deborah demonstrates some high-level problem-solving. So I ended up buying a blow-up doll and dressing it and putting it in the passenger seat. So when I drove home, I didn't get stopped. Phil questions the integrity of his guest. Oh my God! <laughs> and well, that who, have, who have I invited on the show? And Deborah gets herself into a bit of a pickle. Because the next thing you know, I had four NIA guards with semi-automatic rifles charge into my office and haul me off and interrogate me for four and a half hours. All that and so much more as Deborah talks us through her spectacular story so far, with not only some phenomenal anecdotes, but with some superb golden nuggets centred around having an exceptional mindset. Don't forget, we launch a brand new episode each week telling the amazing and always amusing stories from hospitality. So make sure you hit that subscribe button and give us a like and a share across your favourite social networks. Let's share these amazing stories as far as we can. Enjoy! Hello and welcome to the next episode of Hospitality Meets with me, Phil Street. Today, we move into the world of facilities management. And not only that, we're speaking to somebody who's coming from one of the, the industry's massive companies. We have someone with a brilliant job title as well. So I am delighted to welcome Global Transition Director of ISS Facilities Services UK, Deborah Ward. Hi, Phil. How are you? I'm very well. How are you? Outstanding. Great stuff. Whereabouts in the world are you right now? I am in Teddington, uh, looking out and projecting snow in April. I know. It's nuts, isn't it? And it was only last week it was 22 degrees or something like that. <laughs> I was out painting the fence last weekend and this weekend and I'll be shoveling my drive. <laughs> yeah, it's insane. Welcome to global warming. Mm. <laughs> Great stuff. Well, I mean, we're, uh, I'm conscious of time today because you're a very busy lady, so I, I'm just going to crack on and get straight to it. Perhaps you could just take us all the way back to the beginning of your career and walk us through your journey and tell us how you got to where you are now. Okay. All the way back? All Go. right. Yes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so actually, I, I actually started in, in hospitality. So my father, um, my parents owned um, restaurants and bars. And so I, I got to learn very young that if I wanted to know my dad, I had to get to know his business. So kind of followed him around and started as a bus boy and then into the dish pit and then on the line in the kitchen and, you know, then a waiter and the bartender and then a manager. So, you know, I was really fortunate that I got to got to practice and learn on his watch. Yeah. That said, I think there's nothing worse than being the boss's daughter. Yeah. <laughs> um, Nowhere to hide nowhere to hide and and just everybody watching right so and on top of that it was a really small town so you know and you you kind of need to be twice as good right you, you can't give anybody an opportunity to shoot you down so it was yeah. great learning from that perspective and um you know both my folks have been very encouraging and you know from a small town of 2500 in Norton, quebec canada but you know his his bar was the number one bar in all of the eastern townships that used to just have lineups out the door Right. Uh, you know, on a Thursday, Friday, Saturday night for two hours with people coming in from Montreal and from America and just an exciting place to be. Yeah. And then I went to school. I went to I did a hotel and food uh, commerce degree in, in Guelph, Ontario, which was just fantastic because it kind of gave me an opportunity to back up what I'd seen with some, some academics and some theory 
Uh, and that was really interesting. Although I think my my professors didn't think it was so interesting because I'd be like, that doesn't work. <laughs> 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 They'd be shouting out theory and I'd be like, ah, oh, yeah. You know, I know for a fact that doesn't work or something, but that was great. And then I am um, really fortunate. I got to work with uh, what was CP Hotels, the Pacific Hotels that was bought out by Fairmont about uh, 10 years ago. But, you know, some historic, beautiful hotels and one of 12 MITs and just got to, to really learn about hotel and in, in the Royal York Hotel, which is in Toronto and, and one of their largest flagships and where the Queen stays. Because uh, she's on our money too, of course. Of and, course, uh, yes. Of course, yes. And so, you know, massive hotel in in a big, thriving city. So coming from a town of twenty five hundred people, where the hotel actually hold held more than my whole hometown. <laughs> um, that's, that's so it was, yeah, really mad. But worked with George McNeil, who's culinary Olympic chef and is now the global Ritz Carlton chef. So you really, again, really fortunate. Opened four restaurants for them, and then went on to do resorts. And then did my master's in organizational behavior in change management, which was really interesting. And halfway through it, I got a call from a headhunter to go and work for Wolfgang Puck. Oh, damn and, these headhunters. I know. But Wolfgang <laughs> Puck, like that was just like, oh, my God, I, I, you know, you drop everything. So I was halfway through my master's. And I was like, OK, the, the master's will be there. This opportunity may not. So there was a catch, however. They wanted to be to open in Kuwait. Okay. As a, a woman of in, in her early 20s with long blonde hair in a Muslim country with no alcohol. <laughs> so I'm pretty yeah, sure I can do there's anything. There's no challenge now. there at all, is there? Yeah. No. And so I was really fortunate. I got to, I got to train with Wolf in Irvine uh, or in um, L.A. at Spago, which was really fun. And then again in L.A. and uh, sorry, in, in, in Irvine, California. Um, and opened a restaurant for him in Seattle and then shipped off to Kuwait. So that was quite the experience. And, um, and if you don't mind me asking, you don't have to say the specific year, but what kind of rough timeline are we on here? What would that have been? About 20 years ago, 30 years ago, I mean. Yeah, right. Okay. So we would have been, at the, it would have been on the cusp of trouble, I suppose. It was on the cusp of trouble. And, I, and you know, God bless my mother. Right. She was packing my bags and she, of course, she was <laughs> absolutely, wait to get terrified, rid of <laughs> absolutely terrified. But, you know, my folks have both, both been so, you know, if you want it, whatever you want, you can do. Um, I have three sisters, you know, so all girls. And, you know, both my parents were the biggest feminists I know. And nothing was nothing was off limits. So right. just go and try. And, and I think also having that small town. Canadian mentality I just didn't perceive danger because I never grew up with it right so I'd be like la 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 I remember when I first got to London I was walking down the street with uh, who was my boyfriend I'd be like saying hi to everybody and he's like what are you doing they are gonna lock you up <laughs> uh, do you um do you watch stand-up comedy at all I do do you watch uh, you ever watched Catherine Ryan yes she talks, she's got some great sketches on, on yeah. coming from small town Canada yeah. and going to, you know, the big smoke and, and the like. Uh, so I can, I can, that's the comedy version. I can only imagine that the real life version also has its own comedy. It, it really, really does. And, and some of it is, is black comedy. 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, of course, but I, a lot of it, I, I feel so, you know, what's the saying? I think it was in, um, in Groundhog Day, you know, thank the Lord for giving you the common sense to live in a small town. Right? <laughs> so, just coming from a small town, I think there's a lot of sense of community and, you know, the whole, it takes a village to raise a child. I mean, I, I know that if I skip school to go up to the ski mountain on a, on a spring summer, you know, spring day to go, to go spring skiing. And I'd be like, I'd fake that I was sick or something and get off the school bus and then hitchhike up to the mountain. Um, you know, by the time I got there, my mom knew where I was. Yeah. <laughs> there was no hiding, but you know, it was also really safe. Like people looked after each other. We didn't lock our doors. We left the keys on the floor of our car in case somebody wanted to borrow it. I mean, who does my that? Words. Like I, my words. God, <laughs> even so... in, I suppose, even in of its time, in there just wouldn't have been anywhere. You know, not in any place like London or anywhere like where you would do something like that. That's that shows yeah. you that the sense of community must have been really, really strong. Oh yeah, everybody knew everybody's car. So yeah. you know, if you saw somebody else in somebody's car, then you know you'd call them and be like, "Hey, John." So somebody was in your car. Oh yeah, that was my. You know, that was my nephew. who's just born it for the day or whatever. Yeah, and somebody <laughs> really comes to town with a, a Ferrari and uh, and then never gets to actually drive it themselves. Yeah. Yeah. yeah well if somebody came to town in a ferrari everybody would know yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i remember when i my husband first came to nolton uh, that's where i'm from nolton with a k and um when he first came to town he called it truman's world because people were like hi david hi david hi david <laughs> he's like how do they know who i am i'm like well my mom probably went to the post office and then to the bank and then to the pharmacist and told them you were coming so Oh, but that's that's actually really lovely because there are other communities that don't have that kind of you know they're quite cliquey and they they you know I, I think to have that much openness you could almost say that maybe that was your your hospitality grounding was came from your community absolutely because there's you know there is you know you called everybody sir and ma'am and you know there was this whole respect thing in the community and and there was you know certainly there were you know the baddies and things like that but but you know what was considered bad was not bad it was just maybe mischievous opposed to bad right? yeah so yeah your, your sense of community and hospitality was about you know looking after each other looking after you know if somebody when my when my mom died uh, uh, I was in I was here in London my sister was in Vancouver one of them was in Montreal and the other one was in my hometown we all arrived at the airport within two hours of each other. But when, I was the last to arrive. And when I arrived, there was probably 30 people from our community who were at the airport and with car seats and whatever we needed, like just, and they circled. And I remember getting off the plane and seeing my, my, my dad and my sisters and just giving them a big hug. And the whole 30 people just closed ranks in this circle around us to give us that moment. It was just, it's what, you know, you just can't, Incredible. yeah, you can't, that is just, it's, it's an unbelievable. Mm. And I'm, I am very blessed to have had that as my grounding. Um, yeah. You know, and, and it taught me a lot about being respectful of people's space and culture. You know, being in Kuwait was really interesting. And um, one of the greatest pieces of advice I was ever given, you know, cause I was there from groundbreaking to ribbon cutting. So you know, a, a woman telling engineers in Kuwait that they're constructing the kitchen wrong, you know, 
you need to be very diplomatic and you need to understand you need to pick your moment you need to pick your words yeah. and you need to be very careful of how you communicate that that conversation but and what before i went to Kuwait, somebody said to me remember you are a visitor make no mistake about it you are a visitor mm. this is not your home this is not your culture this is not you know you can't go charging in and want to change everything and it was it to this day is still the greatest piece of advice because I've been here 23 years now, 22 years now, and I still oddly feel a, a lot like a visitor. Right. Interesting. And well, there's certain norms in, in the UK that we don't have, you know, there's certain subtleties and, uh, you know, that, that just aren't it, like that in Canada. Yeah. You don't and say it, hello to everyone that you meet in the street. <laughs> <laughs> well, they don't do it all over Canada either. All of the, I have to say. Oh. You know, the whole, the whole, have a nice day now, y'all, you know, in, in America, when somebody tells you to have a good day in Canada, they genuinely mean it. It's yeah. Not, it's not repartee. Yeah. Um, and, in, and in Kuwait, you know, when we opened our restaurant, one of the things, you know, one of the customs is to slaughter three goats on your front door. My and, goodness. Uh, and to put your hands in the blood of the goats and to put them over the, the windows and the doors to ward off the evil spirits. And then they butcher the meat and give it to the poor. Right. And as the, as the GM, my job was to put my hands in this blood. And again, I'm, I don't know, 20, 20, 29, 20, 25. I don't remember how old I was years old. And, and I'm like, Oh, I'm, I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that. And I really sat with myself and thought, you know, when in Rome, this is, that was exactly the phrase that came to my head uh, around. Yeah. If you actually end up doing it, you know, yeah, got, and so I a... did it, and uh, it was, you know, it was a very, I got to be part of something that I wouldn't have experienced any other way. If I had mm. stood back like some foreigner, you know, but it was really, it was really peaceful and really spiritual, and you know, the way, the way that the whole thing transpired, and the way the the meat goes to the poor, and um, the prayer that happens. It was the first time I, again, coming from a town of 2,500 people, right? We have no street lights. We have no elevators or lifts except for in, in, in um, the aging homes. Mm. Um, you know, there's more cows than people in my hometown. And, and so, you know, I remember when the first person of color moved into my hometown, I remember I was in my late teens when the first uh, gay person moved to my hometown you know, big, these are big issues in my town, like, you know, big events in my hometown. And yeah. here I am in, in Kuwait and having to understand how to rota for prayer time and how to ensure that there is water so that they can wash their feet and their hands before prayer. Yeah. And, you know, I was so, I was just such a sponge. I was fascinated, absolutely fascinated because of course I'd been so vanilla in my exposure, you know, Protestant or Catholic. <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> you know uh, um that's and... phenomenal though the um that 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 kind of richness it brings to your life right because and and because you've applied that that sort of same logic to you know i am i'm a visitor here so uh, you know who am i to tell anybody to do anything or if i if i am going to tell somebody to do something i have to go about it in the right way it just really opens your eyes doesn't it into the fact that there is a whole world out there yeah, I mean, there's some, you know, downsides too. I, I, um, if you're caught as a woman at that time after eleven o'clock at night alone, you were considered a working girl. 
Really? And wow. automatically arrested on the spot. Right. And of course, because my restaurants didn't close till 1030. Yeah. You know, by the time <laughs> you cash out and clean up, it's over after 11. And you, what, what do I do? So I ended up buying a blow-up doll and dressing it and putting it in the passenger seat. So when I drove home, I didn't get stopped. Oh, my word. <laughs> it's the only way to avoid it. Like, God. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know, know. The, the, um, when I, I started this podcast, I didn't ever hope to, to I mean, the stories that I've I come across when uh, the people that I speak, but that's the first time that anybody's had to blow up a, put a blow-up doll in the passenger seat just so that they can get home. Oh, yeah. It was insane, insane. I was thrown in jail in Kuwait um, because I ordered Christmas tree lights. So I worked for, for the Al-Humazi family, which is number one or two, depending on who you ask, on the OPEC ladder. And the Al-Sabaz family owned um, the TGIF on, on the Gulf Coast. And it just, did, you know, there's just this rivalry, right? Because they're just, just a rich rivalry. Anyway, so I ordered Christmas tree lights for my palm trees instead of festive lights. And of course, they use the words Christmas. And so right. that was the premise on which they said they were arresting me. And, you know, next thing I know, I'm off to jail. Wow. <laughs> and it was just to scare me off thinking, let's scare the little girl and she'll go back and they won't open or, or, or we'll at least delay it. Yeah. So, you know, interesting. Did it interesting work? Time. <laughs> Did it scare no, you off? <laughs> no, I, I knew, you know, interestingly enough, I knew how powerful the family I worked for was. I was there for 20 minutes. I mean, Right. I'm not going to comment on to how I got released so quickly and what transpired for that to happen. But yeah, it was 20 minutes. And I was never, interestingly enough, I was never scared. I've been more terrified on the streets of LA than I was in Kuwait. Right. <laughs> you know, I really, I, I never felt that. And, but in Africa, so after that job, I went and did, I ran two resorts in the Gambia, West Africa. I, I terminated my director of food and beverage for taking blood money from the staff. Um, oh wow yeah it was it was it was painful I mean these people are beautiful and I have to say it taught me so much about pride you know there's yeah. there's no more pride than in the African people you know they they would come to work a lot of them you know were on on ground dirt huts uh with no electricity they were on a grid so every court you know it was split into four so you got you got electricity kind of every second week Goodness gracious. Yeah. And, and, and yet they would come to work in immaculate uniform pressed, you know, there's dust everywhere because of the dirt roads, every, you know, their shoes are polished so you can see your face in them. And, you know, when I was working in Irvine, kids would pull their, their uniforms out of the bottom of a gym bag and think that should impress me because they remembered it. (laughs) (laughs) You know, so the pride of the African people was just so astounding to me, but I, I, I had to terminate this guy for taking blood money. And, you know, again, highly connected communities, right? So they have their own ways. And I guess I, you know, I really went about this wrong. It obviously, and a big lesson for me. I, I think that what I did was right. Perhaps the way I went about, about it was wrong. Because the next thing I know, I had four NIA guards with semi-automatic rifles charge into my office and haul me off and interrogate me for four and a half hours. Oh, my God. <laughs> And well, that, who have, who yeah. have I invited on the show? This is, <laughs> yeah, never yeah. heard anything like it. I, mean, I, I know. I've, uh, I feel like I'm quite a well-traveled guy, but I, geez, Louise, I have not, uh, I've not come across any of this before. The, um, the, it turned out that that the 
the, the gentleman I, I term, terminated his employment for taking blood money, his cousin was the head of the NIA in, in the National Intelligence Agency. Right. So, you know. Yeah, yeah, that was, you were definitely uh, on a, a losing one with that one. Yeah, yeah, pick your battles and understand your audience, right? Yeah. <laughs> Again, well, see, lessons learned. These are great, great lessons for for management and leadership as you progress mm-hmm. up. The, yeah, but by God, you'd, you'd hope you'd get them in a kind of less dramatic way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know, like, but, the the African people are so. The other thing it taught me in Africa is they're so literal. You know, right? Um, like everything is. So you you need to understand how you use your words when you describe things. So, I, you know, when I first moved into the villa. Um, I, I was on a five-star, I rent a, a, a three-star inclusive at a five-star exclusive um, resort. And when I moved into my villa on the five-star, it was just kind of back quarters, but beautiful, you know, had a lawn, had everything. And uh, and the gardener comes up and says, Miss Deborah, you know, how do you want me to tend to your lawn? And I'm like, I don't know, it's hot here. You know, Muhammad, do what, what do you normally do? Like, I guess water it every day. And of course, mm. you know, I look out on rainy season and Muhammad's out there watering like my lawn. I said, Muhammad, what are you doing? And he's like, Miss Deborah, you said every day. And I was like, yeah, my fault. Yeah, absolutely right. <laughs> and, you, know, you know, so you learn to be careful with your words. Yeah. 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 Well, that ultimately, you're just you, you're adapting and, and being respectful of the, the company that you keep. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and again, you know the pride and, and absorption. I mean, because education is not, and training isn't readily available to them. You know, when I came in, I did so much training around guest interaction and service and, you know, uh, anticipating needs and leadership training for some of the supervisors. And, oh, I've never had a more attentive, you know, audience in my life, I think. And they were just sponges, just really desperate for, for information and knowledge and Mm. Um, it was just a beautiful, beautiful thing. And, you know, the way you reward and recognize there is different, you know, for, for them, if somebody did really well, I would send, you know, a bag of rice into their village because they're feeding a whole community often on their salary and it, and it heralds them as the superhero of their community. If I'm sending in, you know, a goat or a bag of rice or, yeah, um, you know, so they get to feed their whole village. It was great. Really lovely. Yeah. And then I left there and came to London. And I worked with um, a, a wonderful group of hotels called the Red Carnation Hotel Group, you know, um, yeah, small leading hotels of the world and, and got to work with some great people. And um, didn't have to do anything with goats when you uh, arrived there. Or, no, no, or not interrog- at all. It was their, in- their interview <laughs> structure was like an interrogation, maybe. I, no, 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 it was no. quite good. And, and actually Beatrice Tolman is, you know, just a phenomenal leader. Uh, she's the founder her her and stanley tolman you know founded red carnation and uh, malcolm hendry who um was voted the number one leading gm by condena so you know he's i get to work with them so that was really great yeah um, but you know then i had a baby and and hotels and babies are not not the greatest which is you know i i, I then ran into i started my i finished my master's and started, yeah, I know. Finally, they, they don't have a lot of they don't have a lot of libraries in in Kuwait and Africa that, that no. specialized <laughs> in organizational behavior change. I found, and this is of course all pre-internet and Google searches and things like that. So, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I remember yeah. Uh, the, having to to study under those horrific circumstances as well. 
I said yeah. microfish to my son the other day and he goes, what? I forget <laughs> it. <laughs> forget it. You'll never understand the joys of going through stacks in a library and trying to find the right microfish and then, you know, making notes and photocopying and just different, different yeah, world okay. for them, you know? I know. Um, and, you know, for them to go past page two in a research. Is <laughs> yeah, that's... That's big. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so yeah, I, I get to work with the Red Carnation Hotel Group, and and then I went on to start my own company called Love Learn, and and that was great because I had my babies and could kind of manage my time around around my company, and and really what I was doing was providing that cultural change and organizational behavior and service element into corporate buildings at a time where that didn't really happen. Okay, you know, it, it, back then if if the security guard kind of grunted at you <laughs> you were doing well um so it was all about about bringing in service culture and getting people to understand you know that that mission statement that you hang up on the wall has to mean more than just words and I remember bringing in the c-suite of one company and showing you know six different mission statements um that were all pretty similar you know they all use the similar kind of words I said which ones are yours and they couldn't tell me you know, like, I was like, well, there's your problem right there, yeah. <laughs> you know, so that was great. I got to do that for seven years. And, uh, and then I was consulting with Mighty and um, they, uh, at the time I was consulting to what was solely Merrill Lynch back then and okay. yep. uh, um, on a retender. And uh, the whole thing was built around creating a brand new company for Mighty. So Mighty is actually an acronym that stands for Management Incentive to Investment Equity. Not many people know that, but no, I didn't. I didn't know that. This is such an educational podcast that um, <laughs> that, that you're you're gifting me today. It's um, yeah, this is great. Oh, carry on, carry you. on. <laughs> so, so mighty is like a dragon's den. So you pitch your idea to the board, and and if they like it, they take fifty one percent of it. But they put up fifty one percent of the capital to start it. So you know the cleaning company, the engineering company, the caterers. All, that's how they all started. Wow. Um, initially was brilliant. through that and so you know I pitched my idea to, to the CEO and to the C-suite and they liked the idea I had a business plan for this five-star front of house company it would include events and um, meeting room management and um, you know help desk and and call, call centers and uh, telephony based services mm. along with the front of house and reception and uh, yeah so that she she loved it and she's like great rock on and and so started myself and uh, a handful of people. I think there's three of us at the time and we took it to 25 million in five years, 950 people across the UK uh, and just had the ride of my life. Um, Sounds like all, it, yeah. Yeah, it was just so fun. And we got to do the whole thing. I got to put my money where my mouth is, right? I've been talking about culture as a differentiator for years and people kind of rolling my eyes about, you know, Oh, the, the pom-pom girl, you know, the fluffy stuff. <laughs> and so our whole company was built on, on one strap line, which is creating exceptional memorable experiences one guest at a time. And we didn't, you know, we didn't list values or anything else. And we just created an acid test. Is it exceptional? Is it memorable? If the answer is yes, do it. The answer is no, don't do it. Do it again. You know, don't hire them. If they're not exceptional, don't, mem and they're not memorable, don't, you know. So it really yeah. was the basis of every decision we made, Quite including our tenders, our training, our recruitment, everything. Just a, a, well, I mean, I'm sure it's not simple, simple, but it is a simple concept that why have all of these extra 
things when this actually applies to every single thing that we do so why don't we just utilize that that as our as our asset test yeah it, and it, and it worked because you know all 950 people across the UK when I left there you know grew to, to just over 1200 but you know that everybody knew that and everybody used that as their their, their yardstick for everything we did mm. um you know there's a great great story and for the first two years I was I was a bit of a micromanager on that because it was so important for me to to break out of that traditional FM process driven, you know, because we, in FM, everybody has so many, you know, health and safety and compliance and yada, 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 yada. And front of house is very different. And, you know, I really wanted us to break that mold a little bit still, of course, still put, you know, health and safety first, but not at the expense of experience. Yeah. And so I remember, <laughs> you know, we were, one of the things we used to do is, is give, when we tupied people in or when we started a new contract, we would get little sachets of jelly bellies with a, a card that says, you know, creating exceptional memorable experiences one guest at a time and welcome to client services. And I would sign it and I'd go around and meet everybody um, with, with the senior leadership team. And so we get to know people on, you know, at least that one time as we got bigger. But, um, and the day before we were going live, the, uh, the head of comms, I see her and she's putting, she's putting jelly beans into sachets. I said, Julia, what are you doing? She's like, well, we're going live tomorrow. I'm like, yeah, yeah, I know, I know. I'm so excited. She's like, we've got 50 people coming into the organization. I said, I, I get it. That's great. I said, but what are you doing? And she looks down, I'm staring at these jelly beans, right? Mm. And she goes, I couldn't find jelly bellies. And I was like, you know, Julia, we are not a jelly bean company. We are a jelly belly company. Jelly beans you find in petrol stations. We, we, that's not who we are. And she's like, but we're going live tomorrow. And this is like two o'clock in the afternoon. I'm like, I don't care. You're going to have to figure it out. No, you know, plus her cotton socks. I don't know how she did it, but she pulled it off and we got jelly bellies for the next day. Right. Um, I can know, just feel the, the, the sort of series of events in her own brain there about the fact that <laughs> yeah. we don't, we don't have jelly bellies to hand, but we do have jelly beans. So that'll do. Um, I'll just make do with that, and then you come along and go, no, it won't. And uh, yeah. and it's like, but and initially that that probably sums up a lot of what happens when you're operating at an exceptional level, is that that a lot of people's first reaction is, oh, I can't do that uh, it, when they're not used to operating at that level. And this, you know, it it you kind of it's a subtle mind shift change, but what happens ultimately is that then people start focusing on what they can do rather than what they can't do. And what you did there was just a, a subtle uh, nudge in the right direction. Yeah. And became folk folklore, of course, right? Yeah. It yeah, becomes folklore and organization <clears throat> and everybody talks about it. And um, so that was, yeah, it was really great. And, and every know, time we you went, so much went by, everybody went, oh, there's that bloody jelly belly woman. Um, well, actually, it was about toilet paper. Uh, okay. So, so I always, I, when we had people cut, came into our organization, I only ever asked them one question. So I always got to meet them at the end. Um, yeah. And I just say, just told people come from off the top or off the bottom. Right. <laughs> and if they answered it wrong, they didn't get the job. Okay. Just repeat that. Does toilet paper come from off the top or off the bottom? God. Well, I'm not going to answer it because I'm feeling the pressure. <laughs> <laughs> Comes from off the top, Phil. Does it right? Okay. Yeah. Oh, you mean so? Does it go over or does it yeah. come from? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, it's always from over. Always from yeah. over. I've yeah. had this. I've so, had this debate on uh, social media. 
you know, a yeah. very, very important debate. Well, I mean, it was, it's just the biggest joke. And then, you know, then one of uh, the head of training, Tom Robinson, great guy, he, he found the, the original patent for a toilet paper roll and that clearly showed that it had to come from off the top and he sent it to me. You know, the number of times I get people sending me pictures of toilet paper rolls, whether they have a rose on them or somebody's <laughs> folded them into a fan or you know, <laughs> put a little V in them, you know, so very, yeah, it just, it, that's what I'm kind of known for. That's pernickety. You know, I never use the word employees. I ban the word employees. So, you know, the first tender we went out, I just took a red pen and we're team members and we're in this together. And, yeah. 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 Well, Everything. I mean, that, that culture piece starts from the top. Right. And um, if you're if you're a big believer in it, then then it might take a bit of time. But but generally speaking, and you're consistent, people will get it in the end. And it, I think it goes back to Africa, right? The power of language. Yeah. And how you use language, you know, exceptional is different than good or great. Right. Yeah, it, it just is. right. Yeah. Are you being exceptional? Are you being memorable? And so, you know, somebody would come to I really never had to give anybody a hard time. I, you know, they'd bring me something and I'd look at it and I would say, is that exceptional? Yeah. And if it wasn't, they would just, you know, you could see their shoulders drop and their head drop and they'd be like, no. And they'd go back <laughs> off. They'd go. And that was the end of it. Right. They come back to me when it was and that, yeah. the power of, of that. And so I've, I've it, it showed me a lot and the team. The team were phenomenal. Just, I, I just, yeah, I was very blessed. I had a great team, a great leadership team that just uh, kind of rolled their eyes and did it anyway. <laughs> As I yeah. say. Here she goes again, like you know, yeah, here she goes again, the yeah. crazy Canadian. So, um, yeah. And then I, uh, you know, from there, I, you know, I've, I've, I've not always moved for the right reasons or the right time. And I worked for a construction company for a while and that was just the, the wrong culture, right? It really showed me you know, my head was turned, I was headhunted, uh, you know, my salary was doubled, and, but the culture was wrong. And I thought, well, you know, I'm a certified executive coach, I can, I'll pull out my toolkit, and I'll be able to change this. And, you know, there's only so much you can do. And you get to a power, I think the thing that, that really I learned is, do I have the power and influence to make the changes I believe are needed? And the answer is no, then I either become part of the problem, right, if I stay, and uh, and so yeah, I, it was it, it was just a I gave it a good old country try and um, it just didn't work and it just got to the point where I'm starting to not like who I'm becoming in this environment. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And and it just was the wrong move for me. Other people have thrived, um, and actually my leaving spurred some changes that they they couldn't have made unless they were shocked that way with my leaving. So that was really great for that reason. And we did some great things there as well. We, we, you know, expanded into America and we, you know, lots of good, the numbers were good. You know, the numbers, we did a lot of great things in numbers. So, and then I went to tech um, to help a friend, which was also really exciting and got to work with an entrepreneur, um, got some PE money. So you restructured Europe and enabled, you know, put in some processes and procedures that enabled us to go after some really big PE money that was needed for growth. And, you know, it was kind of a conscious choice because tech was not something I had a lot of knowledge in and really wanted to understand it a little bit better. Very sales driven, which is also, you know, I shied away from before. Right. Um, so it gave me a really great avenue into that. Um, worked for JLL, 
uh, for a while and in the human experience and loved it. You know, got to work with Neil Murray and, and Mark Kasky and Sue Asbury Price. And that was really exciting and, and work with human experience and translate again, achieve ambitions is their strap line. And interestingly enough, I was in a meeting and they were talking about promotion and they do this kind of promotion round every, every year. And they can only, you know, they had three people they were talking about in this meeting. I'd only been there for like three weeks. And they were talking about, well, I'm not sure. And we can only promote so many. And what do we do if we don't? And, da, da, da. and they said, Deb, what do you think? And I, and I said, I couldn't possibly comment. I've been here for a nanosecond. I don't know these people. I said, but here's my question. Which one of these people is going to help you achieve your ambition? And 10 seconds later, they had the answer, right? So that's the so power of a good strap line. Yeah. And, you know, I don't know if you've read Blue Ocean Strategy. I actually haven't. I'm writing it down right now. Yeah. Great book. And so they talk about three things that, that create uh, blue oceans are, are clear blue water between you and your competitor, right? It's like a place to play and red oceans are bloody, right? So there's high competition, low margins, knives out kind of competitive environment. And yeah. blue ocean is clear blue space between you and your competitor. And they said to create blue ocean strategy, you need three things, which is focus, divergent, and a compelling strap line. Um, right. You know, and when I think of the companies that do it great, you know, just do it. <laughs> How much better does it get than that? I know. Right? I know. It's just ladies and gentlemen serving ladies and gentlemen, Ritz Carlton, right? Absolutely positively must get there overnight. Just yeah. so many great, powerful strap lines that, that tell people what they need to do and, and, and drive those behaviors. Right? So all the way down the line, doesn't matter who you are in the organization. You just, if you can look at your strap line and know and that drives the right behavior. It's, I think it's pretty powerful. No doubt. Do you also think that people who come up with strap lines have a, a career in card writing? <laughs> probably. Probably. It's one of my favorite things to do if ever I'm feeling a little bit down or depressed is, well, I used to go into card shops. Remember when you could go into shops? Yep. Mm -hmm. um, oh, it's coming back. It's coming back. And uh, and just pick up random cards and, and read read the comedy ones you know and i would generally always walk out of the shop much happier than i walked in yeah i didn't buy or any bumper cards stickers. <laughs> bumper yeah. stickers right bumper sticker writer or something like that yeah absolutely so yeah so then i i you know i loved doing that i love being in a place where the human experience that was created a lot by uh, dr marie Poubarot, and she she did a whole thing on on engage and power fulfill uh, as a way to enhance productivity in the workplace. So I was able to, a lot of what she did was theoretical, right? And I worked in an operations team. And so it was my ability to translate her theory into operations so that everybody throughout the organization understood how, what that meant. And so, like I said, bringing the achieve, achieve ambitions to life in our everyday vernacular and our decision-making and our value set. So how does that drive behaviors and actions? Mm. Um, so I love, I absolutely loved it. Love, love, loved it. I can't say a bad word about it at that all. It does sound to... very interesting being able to take that kind of high level theory and figuring out actually, you know, this comes back to almost the role reversal of you in the classroom at the, the beginning when they're teaching you the theory of, of operations uh, and actually you've already got some real world experience and you go, no, 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 that doesn't work. Yeah. <laughs> exactly the same principle, I suppose, just on a, a slightly higher level. Yeah, absolutely. And it was, it was, it was fun to watch the penny drop for people too. Like, oh, 
you know, that was really cool to yeah. see, to see how people were like, oh, okay, I can just apply this and that will actually drive my behaviors or that will get me to the right outcome. So yeah, I really loved it. However, I was given an opportunity to do kind of another startup. The thing I found, the struggle I had was I was in a big organization, which often, you know, you can't, you don't move as quickly as sometimes you want to. Mm. And being an entrepreneur, I, I kind of move fast and break things. So I, had a, I was asked to go and, and work with Cam and Hooper, which is an events company, um, and have an equity stake as the managing director and drive change. And, and, and again, you know, create a strap line, create a, a belief and, uh, you know, make sure that we were doing things differently, create that blue ocean kind of competitive arena. Yeah. And again, had, had a great time, really enjoyed what we were doing there, but of course, uh, and, and was very fortunate. So I worked on the last thing I did with, with Cam and Hooper was to create the Battersea power station bid for events. And uh, of course, you know, we were in the arena with the big players and we are the David in the David and Goliath uh, organization. And again, the power of words and the power of storytelling um, was so evident there. And so we won. It was, you know, 800 million pound bid, the biggest career win I've ever had in my life. And then COVID hit. Right. So um, that was it's. Yeah, that was devastating, and uh, you know, kind of euphoria to devastation in 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 three months almost. Yeah, well, um, that that sums up COVID perfectly. Yeah, yeah, it did, and you know, it just um, Imbiba is a is an investment fund, EIS investments firm, and you know, last MD in, first out kind of thing. Yeah, and so what they did was take all of their organizations and consolidate them. So. But, you know, still a great company, great, great opportunity. And I, I was thrilled to have it. And I was thrilled to be part of the Battersea bid because we we did the whole, the way that we won that was to create literally a, a child storybook on the back of our bid about the sleeping giant, the Riverside giant and awakening the Riverside giant and what that would look like. And right. so we, we, we sent in our, our, our kind of compliant bid, which was, you know, 250 characters or whatever it is that you, in those stupid little boxes that you have to set <laughs> in. Um, but then we also then created this massive kids storybook that started with Once Upon a Time. And it was all about awakening the sleeping Riverside giant. And, you know, that there was this, you know, princess Claire who, who's going to look for her palaces, you know, and so we talk about finding each of the different venues and how they're different and, you know, the jewels and the crown and, and, and that we've come across, you know, the largest of them all. And, and, and that's, so we had it bound and we had it put in a storybook and we sent it off with a lot of our, um, we have a chief booze engineer at Cam and Hooper. And so he had created several different concoctions of gins and things that we renamed uh, to fit the period ladies in waiting water and things like that. Mm. Uh, and we sent the whole box off to the bid team and it, you know they they then asked us for another one and they sent it off to the investment company and uh in malaysia and you know that's what won us the bid so again the power of storytelling which is i think people people want to hear the story they don't they don't want a sales pitch anymore they yeah. want the investment and i couldn't agree more I, you know it, it just imagine the, the the pitch documents that they read where they're you know it's the same language that people are just reusing to to try and depict a USP and actually you've depicted a USP by acting differently. Mm, 
Yeah. And showing that we care enough to think differently. Right. I think yeah. that's the other thing. It's like, you're not going to just chop and change or cut and paste that we really went out of our way to, to pitch it differently. And then, you know, post COVID, I was, you know, great opportunity here with, with ISS. And I, again, just absolutely loving what I'm doing because again, I get to bring some amazing world first visionary programs to life. Um, and, and, you know, when we look at what is, you know, everybody's talking about what the world of work going to look like after COVID and, yeah. you know, and for me, it's about creating FOMO. It's, it's really fear of missing out. We want people to rejoice and, and celebrate and collaborate and come to work because they want to. I mean, if you want to bang out emails, you can do that from anywhere. You know, we've yeah. proven that, you know, if you want to have a zoom meeting, you can do that from anywhere, but if you want to collaborate and if you want to, you know, also pamper yourself a little bit, right. So some of the stuff we're working on is around creating spaces that match the work that you do and you will go towards those spaces for the work. So you will right. go to a, you know, to a, a different space if you're doing a contract than if you were doing emails, than if you were, you know, spending time connecting with people. Oh, and to your point, very interesting. Very interesting. And, and the biggest thing, you know, you were talking about earlier which I couldn't concur more with, you know, before we started the, the, the recording was just the, how much organizations now need to focus on well-being yeah. and looking after the whole individual, you know, the emotional, the physical, the social, the intellectual elements of a human being. And I'm so thrilled that that's happening. You know, I'm just about to hire a well-being manager who's going to start to look at everything we do through that lens you know how does food play a part how does air quality play a part where are we using that you know are we are we sending push notifications for people to move every 90 minutes so they don't just you know sit and be sedentary how are we introducing exercise and food and water and nutrition into everyday parts of their life so so it's not all about work yeah it's fascinating stuff. Uh, sounds it. And it sounds like it's a, a phenomenal opportunity, actually, to utilise the, the world that we've been given on the back of this thing that we've all, all had to, uh, to, to kind of get, come to terms with. But in actual fact, it does give us all an opportunity to really analyse what, what wasn't working before. Let's make sure that what, what we come out of works well for everyone. I think it takes a, me right back to the beginning, Phil, which is it's all about community. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, but I couldn't all agree. Couldn't agree more. I think that there's a, a book out there. I think it's called The Systemic Win. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know if you've come across that one. Nope, I'm uh, but it, it is literally about the fact that in, in any, I'm going to use the word transaction. There's probably a better word out there for that. But in any coming together of two people slash businesses slash business or a team member or whatever, the, the, the best solution is one where both of those parties that are involved are happy and uh, are coming out of that having won, basically. And if you can create a, a, a I was going to say create a world, that sounds very woo-woo, but um, <laughs> if you can create a place, an environment whereby, you know, everybody who's involved in that environment has, has wins, then that has to be very, very powerful. And I would take that a step further. You're absolutely right. And I take it a step further. It's about the culture because the environment is no longer one specific place. It yeah. could be home. It could be an office. It could be a third party place. 
So, you know, it's about creating that culture that gives everybody a win. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Great to talk to you, Phil. I mean, I could talk forever to you. You're, you're, it's so much fun. Bless you. Yeah, no, I, I'm very conscious of time, so I, I will I will wrap it up. I think we, we probably have to come back and do a part two at some point. <laughs> I would love uh, that. Yeah. <laughs> um, but no, I, I really appreciate you giving us uh, so much time. There's so many other questions I'd love to ask you, but we'll, we'll do that another time. And um, I wish you all the very best in what sounds like a really, really fabulous and very interesting role. Thank you so much. Stay safe, staying and smiling. You too. Like that. I'm nicking that as well. Thanks very much. (laughs) (laughs) Take care. Take care. Bye-bye now. Bye. Bye. And there we have it. Deborah had some incredible stories from her career so far, and I feel like we only just scratched the surface. A huge thank you to her for coming on and sharing her story. Don't forget, we'll be back at 8pm next Wednesday with more stories from hospitality. But until then, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.